Hello, hello, and welcome to Hear Her Sports. I'm Elizabeth Emery, host and producer of this podcast. Today's guest is coach and triathlete Lisa Keller. She is a born and raised Alaskan, and we talk about how growing up in the Wild West relates to Title IX and her life as an athlete. As a kid, she played lots of sports in leagues and in school, as well as just being active in the wilderness around Anchorage. She now focuses on coaching through her company, Multisport Training of Alaska, and on competing in triathlons. She is a past winner of the Gold Nugget Triathlon and the Eagle River Triathlon and is two-time Alaska Triathlete of the Year and has achieved All-American status in USA Triathlon age group rankings. In September this year, she will compete at the 70.3 Ironman World Championships in Nice, France, followed by seven days cycling in Italy with friends. She'll be practicing what she preaches about rest in the episode. Lisa is one of the founding board members of the Alaska Run for Women, a women-only race started in 1993 to raise money and awareness of breast cancer. In 2002, she was diagnosed with breast cancer herself, and since then has won the survivor division of the race many times. What hit me most talking to Lisa are her examples of the power in sports for women. We talk about training, coaching women in prison, women-only events, training in groups and solo, and being an older athlete. As always, that's lots of good stuff, so let's get started. A huge welcome to you, Lisa. It's been really fun getting you here, finally, after all of our planning emails, so thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, we have a lot in common. We seem to have a lot of common interests, but before we get into some of that, could you just start off by setting things up and sort of describing what you do? Well, I am a triathlon coach. Uh, that's my primary piece of what I do. And um, I've been in sports my whole life. I And so I, I feel like I really got a, you know, I really followed my passion, basically. And so I coach people in Anchorage, Alaska for triathlons. And I run swim groups and run groups, um, not so much biking groups. Um, so that's, uh, one of the things I do, but then in, within that business, I also am a coach at running free Alaska and actually the program director for running free Alaska, which is a running program for women inside the prison at Highland prison. It's our only female prison in Alaska. Uh, so we run almost year round running program in there and we have races inside and everything. Uh, and then I also am um, an, a host of a show called Outdoor Explorer. I'm one of four hosts, which was started about six years ago on Alaska Public Media. And we just talk basically about everything in the outdoors in Alaska. Uh, and sometimes we do kind of crossover stuff, like I have a few travel shows and stuff coming up too. So cool. So I have, I have my hand in a lot of places, the total gig economy. Alaska's like that, it seems like. It definitely is. And there's a lot of freedom up here to do what you want to do and dress the way you want to dress <laughs> and be the kind of person you want to be. So right. that's good. I don't know much about the, what did you say, running free in Alaska? It's called Running Free Alaska. Okay. And it is. it was started by uh, Tim Alderson and he was doing his master's thesis at the uh, prison at Highland Prison, Highland Correctional. And he was uh, interning while he was doing his master's thesis. So he did his master's thesis on how a running program could affect women pres uh, prisoners and looked at four different components of that, uh, who the World Health Organization has a survey based, you know, the health of your community. And so you look at environmental health, social health, 
physical health and mental health. And he looked at those four indicators and then did, you know, he had him do a survey and it was, it's a pretty depressing when you, at the beginning of it, you know, how these women feel about where they're at, of course. So they're in an institution and they're there for sometimes some pretty bad stuff that they have to face and live with. And, um, then he did this 12 week program and that's where I became involved first. This was in 2012. And then at the end of the program, he, we had a race and then he redid the, the evaluation and he just found all four markers improving in these women. And it was really quite astounding. I mean, most of us know that your physical health is going to improve. So he kind of based that on how, their times improved because he did a pre 5k and a post 5k and they all improved their times sometimes by, I think one person improved her time by like 12 minutes in a 5k. It was huge. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. It was really, really huge. And then he also based it on weight, which is a little tricky, but just like in college, there's the freshman 15 and in prison, they call it the felon 50 usually because <laughs> you can put on a lot of weight in prison and all of them lost weight. And so that was a pretty good indicator of health. But like I said, that's a tricky one, especially with women, because you have to make sure that you're not diving into that unhealthy weight loss, too, and that obsessive compulsive weight loss. And then um, the, the kind of more striking things were the social and environmental health. So the social health is their relationships with each other and their friendships. And prison is such an inherently distrustful place. You don't make friends. Or you're always expecting your friend to stab you in the back. But just as all runners know, you just build these relationships with people while you're running. And you can talk about things and that you would never be able to talk about normally. It just breaks down a lot of barriers. One of my runner friends kind of feels like it's like you don't have to look anybody in the face while you're running. You have to look forward. So it's easy mm -hmm. to say these things, you know, while you're running. And then the environmental health piece of it was pretty huge. They actually, all of them said they felt better about the institution. They felt better about the correctional officers. And I think it would be interesting to do a study on the correctional officers because just anecdotally, they definitely have a lot of respect for the women who go out and do, and do our running program. Um, so it's pretty powerful. And there's other prisons around the nation now, and we've had a lot of people getting a hold of us about starting programs for people in prison or probation, people on probation. Uh, there's a homeless shelter run that started in Anchorage now, a woman who takes out women in this homeless shelter and runs with them three days a week. And I just think it's a, it's a pretty powerful method of becoming human, basically, because mm -hmm. we're such a running-based creature. Right. So what are you doing, like, really specifically when you go there? Like how, what kind of training is happening and, and how are you very specifically involved? Well, I coordinate all the volunteer coaches. And right now I have about 15 volunteer coaches and we are out there three times a week. I only go out once a week, but and most coaches just go out once a week. And we're there Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 1030 to 1130 a.m. And we have a group anywhere, kind of depends on the time of year, 20 to 50 runners. And we implement workouts. I write all the workouts and do the whole training season. So it's a progressive training up to the race, just like I would do for any client of mine. And so one day is, you know, fast intervals, 
the next or the two days later, it's maybe a tempo type run. And then the third day is kind of interesting because we used to do a long run and because we, in the fall, we have a half marathon. So some people need to have a long run, but we decided on Fridays to go to a fun Friday. So it's games, relays, things like that. And then Saturday they're on their own to do a long run, which varies depending on if they're going to do the 5k, the 10k or the half marathon race. Uh, and, and usually we're in 16 week sessions. So we usually have two 16 week sessions a year with some breaks in between. And, And where are they running? There is a yard and I call it the most beautiful track in Anchorage because it's right at the mouth of the Eagle River Valley, which is just a little bit North. It's still Anchorage. It's about a 25 minute drive from my house. Um, but it's a bedroom community of Anchorage. And these huge looming mountains, and then this track is 337 meters. It's dirt and rock. It's got a little hill on each side of it, so a little downhill and a little uphill. Um, And then for the race, we were able to get permission to run the entire inside perimeter of the prison, which amazingly came out to like 800 meters or, you know, half a mile. So it was really easy to... Uh, figure out our race distances from there. Mm-hmm. So if they're doing long runs, they're doing a lot of laps. Yes, they have to do those long runs on that 337 wow. meter track. Yeah. That's dedication. It, it is dedication. And it is amazing to see the the people who are really connected to it, you know, the ones who are doing the half marathon and the 10K. Um, although my best runner just did the 5K because she um, in the fall, the goal was that she, she wanted to break 20 minutes in the 5k, which she, I mean, that's fast. That's fast for anybody. And she came so close. Uh, I had brought in about eight runners, top runners around from the city of Anchorage who paced her through this. And so this is community runners came in to do this. And, uh, one of the runners miscounted the laps, even though we were all counting laps, she mistakenly thought that Gina was on her last lap and told her that. So Gina just like hammered this lap and she was actually a lap short. So she hammered it and then stopped. And then everybody was like, go, go, go. And so after about 20 seconds, they got her up and moving again. And she had to like really gut it out that last lap again. And she came in at 2014. So she totally would have broken 20 minutes in the right. 5k if, if that hadn't happened. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. And the, and the greatest thing about it, you know, I mean, this is a kid, she's 30 years old. I kind of consider her a kid. Um, but she's been in prison for six years. Uh, she, murdered her boyfriend and she was in a, a, a psych like a drug psychosis when it happened and she's tiny tiny like she's like probably 105 pounds and maybe five foot two um and to see her the difference in her from when she first came to us where she couldn't even make eye contact with anybody i mean she was in the the segregated unit the because of the psychosis this drug psychosis had just kind of metamorphosized into a you know full on psychosis and so she was in mental health for six months before she came to us and to see her now develop into this human being I mean she's she's smart she's caring she is extremely just broken up over her crime I mean she just 
can't even believe it. It's like a dream to her. Like it didn't, like it wasn't her doing that when it happened. And she's become one of our, or she is our leader. I would say she's our leader of our, of our running group. Um, and she's just amazing. And um, it's kind of sad because I think she grew up in foster care. You know, if she had had um, come from a different family, all her, her mom is great and supportive now, but she struggled too. If she'd been in different circumstances, she could have been a great athlete outside of prison. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think that she'll take this new outlook? You know, when she does get out, definitely. Uh, I she's just somebody you you can kind of tell who's going to cycle back in, you know, and who's going to stay out. She's when she gets out, which hopefully is not in decades. She's a different person, and uh, that's what you really learn with working with at least women in prison is that. Uh, I would say 99% of them, you know, are different people than when they committed their crimes. They're not the same person and they're extremely remorseful for what they've done. I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, the lack of opportunity for in sports for women really has such far reaching consequences that we often don't realize, you know, we sort Mm -hmm. of say sports is, you know, it's frivolous and stuff. But you've just given us a great example of, you know, not so much. Right. It's, um, I, I think so, something that has stuck with me for a while is uh, an article I read about AA. And uh, the article was that the success rate with women in AA is much lower than the success rate with men. And part of the reason that was put forth in this article the theory is that women, what AA wants you to do is to give up your power to a higher power, right? And the point of that is, is that women are always asked to give up power. Most women feel they've never had power. And if you don't have any power to give up, then how does that help you to give up whatever power you do have to, to this higher power? But sports to me is the opposite. Sports gives women power. And once you have that power over your own body, that power to, you know, go out and do these things with your body and it translates to your mind, then that is to me the most healing thing that you can have as a woman in substance abuse or, or, you know, just a lifestyle you've gotten into that's, that's not healthy for whatever reason. And sports to me are just where all that power is. And I wish it would be, they would use it more. And when I say sports, I mean activity, you know, I don't mean just like organized sports or anything, but getting out and hiking and running and biking and swimming and maybe going and playing basketball or soccer or whatever, rock climbing. Um, You know, I think it should be used more in rehabilitation. Mm Mm-hmm. You said on your website that you thought you were a real beneficiary of Title IX. Yes. I find this completely fascinating because I think we're roughly the same age. And, uh-huh. you know, there's sort of this transition zone of women roughly our age. And, you know, depending on where you went to school and where you lived, you know, you either feel that you're a beneficiary or you're not quite a beneficiary. So could you just sort of describe how you grew up and why you think that you're a beneficiary? Yep. Um, so I'm 55. I just turned 55. Are we the same age? We are. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you grew up on the East coast. I did. 
And I grew up on the West Coast, in Alaska specifically. Right. So I think that the East and West Coast are have such a different um, environment and societal expectations. I think there's different expectations on the East Coast. I think the West really is wilder and is more um, open to change, at least at that time when we were littler, you know. Um, so in Alaska, I mean, Alaska was like the last frontier, you know. And so it was really the Wild West up here when my parents moved up here in 1963. And my dad was from Montana, so and he had three sisters, and they were always in the outdoors. The sisters did everything the brothers did. There weren't many restrictions placed on them. And I think my dad brought that definitely with him to Alaska. And my mom came along for the ride. I mean, my mom wasn't particularly sporty. She definitely didn't have any opportunities to do sports. You know, she is now 82. But later on, when my brother and I were doing sports, my mom and dad both started running. So my mom... I mean, she always followed along and, you know, I learned to ski when I was three years old and she was up there skiing with me, you know, so to her credit, she really dove in as well. But in Alaska, we were doing everything the boys were. So I played soccer there when soccer first arrived here and Anchorage was in, uh, I was 12 years old and it was the boys and girls club and we played together on the same teams initially. So officially it was a, a male and female thing girl and boy together. Yeah. Yeah. And same with, uh, little league baseball. My dad was a baseball coach. So I played little league baseball for just a season. I didn't dig it that much. So, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, but so my dad just, I mean, I was in all the same sports my brother was, we didn't, my brother and I still run and bike and ski together. So, um, and then, you know, skiing was really big up here and it was, all the same. And, and kind of what's interesting too, is when right before I went into high school, cross country running, girls only ran 3k and boys ran 5k. But so this was 1978, 79, and they changed it. So this was in the late seventies in Alaska, they changed cross country running. So girls ran the same distance as boys. Wow. Hmm. It, yeah. And we did all the same sports. Um, uh, all the same events, I should say, in track and field, except the pole vault. And now Alaska doesn't even have the pole vault at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then the big difference, which is kind of still out there, is the distances in skiing right now. Girls in high school ski 5K and boys ski 7.5K. So it, does, it doesn't make any sense. Girls right. should be skiing the same distance as boys. Yeah. And so they're kind of a kind of lagging behind but um do you think that this is particular to alaska because i was in alaska for two months uh i don't know four or five years ago and i was immediately struck by how rugged all the women were and they just seemed so different there are a lot of badass women in alaska for sure. there are a lot of badass women there (laughs) (laughs) no doubt about it i mean anytime you think you're like badass you can just look at somebody next to you who's like 75 years old and doing this stuff, you know? <laughs> I, I totally restructured my ladder of where I fit into badassness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it is pretty striking. I mean, I do think that the opportunities were bigger on the West Coast for um, women as we were growing up than on the East Coast, because there just weren't the same societal expectations. But right, right. Alaska is just even more extreme when it comes to that. And it really, 
I mean, I was born and raised here and a lot of people chose to come here. And when my mom and dad came here, women came here with a man. And now you see men coming here following women. Mm -hmm. So there's been just a big change over the decades for sure. Right. Yeah, that, that's that's so fascinating. And, and I do want to talk about because you are involved with a lot of women's only organization sport organizations like a running mm -hmm. club and a cycling club why do you think that a lot anchorage anchorage specifically is able to support that and what do you think the benefits are of having these women's only groups so the these are actually events so okay. we have yeah so i'll kind of go through it we have the ski for women which is the largest all women's ski event in north america uh, we have the bike for women uh, which is, I mean, it sells out within like 15 minutes of registration opening. It's sold out. I know. I saw the, but yeah, it's already sold out for yep. the summer. Yeah. And then we have, um, so that race, so the ski for women just happened like two weeks ago. The bike for women happens in May. And then two weeks later is the gold nugget triathlon, which is the oldest all women's triathlon in the world. And, um, it sells out within five minutes there's because it's run out of a pool because early in the season we really can't use lakes and that would really cut down anyway on how many people did it and then the run for women which is in june that actually has a really interesting history so there was the women's run which started in the late 70s again in anchorage and it was an all-women's running race and um the race director of that used to bring up outside runners like professional runners to come run up here and then the the guy who started out it was a man, and um, then in the early '90s, uh, it, his budget was released, and it turns out he was taking a huge salary, like at the time, twenty four thousand dollars for this one race that had five thousand people in it. And you know, I'm not opposed to race directors getting paid. I think they should be paid because it's a valuable service. But it, it seemed like he was getting more because he was cutting back on services at the same time he was not cutting that salary. So he, you know, the t-shirt design never changed and, and he cut back on prizes and there didn't seem to be an emphasis placed on the women athletes mm -hmm. of Alaska. It seemed to be on, let's get all these professionals up here to beat the Alaskans, you oh, know? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so it really rubbed a lot of us wrong. And so a woman named Terry Paul's in 1993, when all this was released, um, she decided to start a, a competing run and it was called uh, the run for women, the Alaska run for women instead of the women's run. And all of the proceeds from that race went to, at the time, just uh, women's health issues. And then they competed against each other that first year. And then the women's run, the original one died. And then we've continued the Alaska run for women since then. And, um, it, in fact, this year we are being inducted into the Alaska Hall of Fame, nice. uh, sports, sports Hall of Fame. Yeah. And um, so it's continued. We've raised millions of dollars for breast cancer research. But the other important piece of that was in our mission is also to recognize the top female athletes in Alaska. And so I think we've done a good job of that, promoting that you know, there's these two pieces that women are interested in the competitive side. And also a lot of women just want to go out and help out with supporting breast cancer research and keeping a lot of that money in our state. Like we're not a Komen run. We don't give it to Komen. Mm -hmm. So 
So we, we do do things differently up here. <laughs> <laughs> but why do you think that's it's been so popular? Again, going back to sort of you know, why there are so many Alaskan women who are interested in staying physically fit and sort of does it happen because they've moved to Alaska or do they move to Alaska because they're already that way? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Right. Um, because I think, it, well, it's funny because um, after one of my shows, which was on women and people of color in the outdoors, I got stopped at this coffee shop and the guy must have recognized my voice because he said, oh, hey, you're on Outdoor Explorer. And I said, yeah. And he said, I, well, I'm just curious. I listened to your show the other day and I just wonder why women have to have their own groups. What's the deal with that? And he was pretty like hostile towards it. Like he was upset that when he would go to a meetup group that the women just wanted to start their own meetup group. And I had to tell him, dude, we're just, we just don't want to go to groups where we're getting hit on by you guys all the time. I mean, that's like the <laughs> bottom line. And, oh, oh, well, I don't do that. My friends might, but I don't do that. But then it really, when I talked to him more, that's what it really turned into, you know, like he wasn't getting attention from women. They mm -hmm. weren't giving him the attention he wanted. And so I think that's a huge part of women's only events is this just not having to deal with the patriarchy, you know, <laughs> and creating something that is ours alone. And women respond really, really well to groups. And I coach men and women, and my groups are probably 80 to 90% women. You know, there's only maybe 10 to 20% that are men that will come and participate in groups. They just don't feel that same draw of kinship and friendship and just wanting to be together and it's just different. And so that's why I think women only events are so successful and men events are not, I mean, they tried to do a men's run here that was men only and they couldn't even get a hundred guys to come out. Oh, you know, funny. for Yeah. Women really are drawn to groups and being together and um, men aren't. And so then it's so, so important to have our, our own space. And in terms of the competitive piece of it, I really love that the Ironman, there are 70.3 world championships. They now have the first day is women and the second day is men. So they've separated their men and women. Um, so you're not going to the world championships and competing against men. You have your own race because really every race that you go to like that is a men's race because men are going to win it. Women, mm -hmm. occasionally a woman may come, not in that particular sport, but in some sports, occasionally a woman's going to come out and top, but really every race is a man's race. They're going to win it. So why not give us a chance to shine and cross the finish line first? You've sort of talked about coaching. Let's, let's lead right into some coaching. And I know from your website that you definitely have philosophies about coaching. Um, so why don't we start with sort of your idea of coaching in groups versus uh, training solo? Uh, I just think that groups, like we talked about just a little bit earlier, groups are just so important for people to have that social experience. And I just, I really think the social piece of it can be as big as the physical piece. And the social piece is really what gets people to work out the, you know, we're, we're talking about like most people compared to that little sub subset of like 5% of the people who just want to go hammer all the time. You know, most people just need to be moving and to have a goal, which I think it's really important to have a goal that is measurable and a race is measurable. 
And it doesn't mean that you're racing to stand on the podium. You know, you might be racing just to uh, accomplish something or to get a better time than you've had in the past or to see where you're standing that particular time of the year. And so I think groups give the social outlet. It's um, the social piece that's not even connected to running or biking or swimming or anything else. Um, and it gives you the support and it gives you, you know, if you don't show up for that group, people are like, Oh, where were you last week? You know? And so you have a little bit of peer pressure to get in and get your workout done. And I think it really challenges you more than you can be challenged on your own. So, uh, groups are usually higher intensity workouts, um, the way I structure my groups, they're the high intensity workouts that you just can't do on your own. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be able to challenge yourself so much more with people in your lane or people in your pace group and your running pace group. And, and that's going to give you a better product in the end. That's going to make you feel better in the end. I struggle a little bit with, I'm sort of more of a solo exerciser. And part of it is I just have not found a group that's compatible. How do you, how do you create that? Because obviously you're a big component of, of creating a good group. So I, I want to clarify that groups are just one part of your training. So I wouldn't say that you would train every single day, every single day with a group. So something like a long run or long bike, those may be things that you go out and do on your own. Um, but maybe one day a week you do a hard swim with a group and one day a week you do a hard run with a group. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a piece of a bigger, bigger pie. Got it. Um, yeah. And because honestly I do most of my training by myself, but I can't do any of my hard stuff. Like for instance, I've been doing all my running by myself recently because I haven't found people who can meet with me at a certain time to do a hard workout on the track. So I won't go <laughs> I do a hard work on the track by myself. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to mention the whole logistics. I'm always having trouble finding people who have the same schedule. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it seems so minor, but it's yeah. Not. No, yeah, it's it's tough for sure, especially if you're self-employed because you can go whenever, you know. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I think me creating groups is a is a little well, I would say a lot of luck, and I th- think where I'm at right now is a lot of luck because I'm operating in the community I grew up in. I was a good athlete all my life, so people have known my name as an athletic person all my life, and I've been successful at that at this local, you know, level. So once I started creating groups, I mean, I think I did it like it was right when email started. So that made it a little bit easier. And then once you get it rolling, you know, it's just, it's word of mouth and people say, Oh, come do this. Cause it's fun. And you create a community within that group. So I don't know if that answered the question, but <laughs> I, a little bit, but you know, I think that, that I don't know. How do, how do I say this? I love when groups work well, but there's so many times when they don't work well. And mm-hmm. I do believe that it's the person who's leading the group that dictates sort of how it is run and uh, sort of the personality of the group. And Got it. Uh, so obviously you're doing something right, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think I, I understand that. So um, I think one of my basic philosophy on all of this stuff is you got to be having fun. And I take that into the prison. This has got to be fun. And this doesn't work for everybody. You know, this is the little speech I give them at the beginning of the season. Not everybody's going to dig running. You know, you can find something that you like to do, but you know, uh, 
it, but it's got to be fun. You have to find some fun in this. Some of the fun may come after you've finished the workout. You know, it might not be during the workout. It might be <laughs> kind of painful, <laughs> but at the end of it, you're like, oh my gosh, look what I accomplished. And, you know, these people around me helped me get me there. And, um, and I helped them get there. And so I think that's a huge piece of it. The other piece of it is, is that I think my groups are really known for being very accepting of people who are just starting. So in all of my swim groups, I have one lane that is dedicated to very beginners. And the big thing with particularly women coming into groups is they always say that they're afraid they're going to um, get in people's way. And I just saw this great article about like, do not move out of your way when you're walking down the street for a man, you know, you walk, you hold your path and don't let that man move you out of your way. And it's amazing how many women have this in their. I mean, we're socialized this way. It's not, it's not biology. We're socialized to get out of the way of p other people. Not take and, up space. And not take up space. Exactly. And that's one of the things I will say to all of them is, yeah, take up your space. Uh, you are not getting in anybody's way. Um, you know, on the track, I tell the slowest runners, I'm like, you are running in lane one. It's easier it's, it's easy for the fast people to go around you. Do not move out of lane one and give them lane one. You are have as much right to lane one as they do. And then I teach my faster runners, you're perfectly capable of running around, and most of them are totally into that anyway. They don't even think about it. They're like, yeah, of course, that's what you do on the track. You know, we're not like, you know, elite level NCAA 10K runners where they run out. That's totally different. You know, when you're doing intervals on the track, you got to be in lane one. It doesn't matter if you're a 12-minute miler or a six-minute miler. So I think that's, a well-known attitude of mine that's projected out to people who come to my groups that makes it part of the fun. So mm -hmm. they, they feel included no matter what your speed is. And in fact, I'll, I'll say I pay more attention to the slower people than the faster people, the faster people, they can, they can figure out what they're doing. They, they know what they're doing. They want to get in and bang something out. The slower people need more nurturing and that's what I do. And how are you encouraging the the newer runners who, or even the the more experienced runners who come to a rough patch and are struggling? Well, that's the amazing um, kind of connection between running as a metaphor for life. You know, there are always going to be rough patches, and it's just this is training for life, and this is something that our runners at Highland have really learned like this is how life is sometimes, but you'll always get to the other side of it in running, especially just letting people understand that part of running is being injured and, you know, you need to figure out how to get through that, which, you know, maybe a different type of training that you're going to do to get past that. But that's, that's just part of it. And you'll still be okay on the other side. You have to have patience and persist. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I noticed from your website is that you seem very data-driven. Is that true? No. Oh, how about that? <laughs> I'm not at all data-driven. <laughs> I wonder why I wrote that down. Yeah. Um, huh. Maybe you're looking at somebody else's website. No, I it was am... definitely. <laughs> That's funny. I'll have to go back and figure Me that too. out. Me um, too. No, because I think I even say something on the website about, um, you know, 
I'm not really into numbers. I'm like an old hippie coach. Like oh, I want funny. people to um, learn how things feel. Um, and I think we've lost a lot in training, uh, in the joy of training over the last, you know, what, maybe 10 to 20 years in the amount of data that people feel like they have to process. Like, uh, here's a good example. Everybody comes to my running groups with these fancy watches and they can't even figure out how to get a lap time because <laughs> I mean, and that's like, and here I am sitting with my Timex Ironman watch, you know, and I can tell you exactly how fast I'm running from my lap times, which is what I'm, I have that posted on a whiteboard. If your pace is an eight minute mile, your lap time is two minutes, you right. know, per lap. And, um, people can't figure it out on their watches. And then a lot of it's there. I mean, to get, to use that data, you really have to be testing yourself a lot, you know, right, exactly. frequently. Yeah. And people aren't doing that. Right. And then they're hinging the whole worthwhileness of their whole human existence on, on what that data is saying day to day. <laughs> right. So what are you using to determine how fast each group or each individual is, is should be going? I use the old school two mile time trial and, okay. um, Patty and Warren Fink, uh, from Portland have developed, and this is common on the internet now have developed uh, pace charts. So, um, if you look at a two mile time trial, you can estimate pretty closely how fast someone is going to run every distance down to a marathon. You know, usually you're within two to 4%. And so that's how I determine paces. Um, and then in swimming, swimming is really tough to use data anyway, because of the water and that you're uh, horizontal in the water. So those two things uh, decrease the, the um, work on your heart. And so heart rate is not very, you know, effective in the, in the water. And you're also looking at your heart rate after you've finished an interval, not during. Um, so really people need to learn how to feel, you know, the talk test has been proven to, to line right up with all of this stuff. If you just use the talk test for all those, talk test. yes, it's great. And people just need to trust it because it really does work and you can just feel stuff instead of being a slave to what your numbers are saying. How does rest fit into your, your workout plan? Uh, so I've been a big rester all my life. Um, <laughs> I've, uh, I had this boyfriend, he's still a great friend. Uh, and he, he's called me the world's laziest triathlete. Uh, <laughs> and it's cause I am like, basically I'm, I totally empathize with people who say, it's just so hard to get out and do these things. I'm like, I know I struggle every single time. Like I make excuses. I'm usually exercising, but at the end of the day and rushing to get things in because I've, procrastinated. Um, really? So, oh yes. I am not one of those people that like, I mean, definitely I think there's, there's people who, who, um, it, it, it's a medication exercise is a medication, you know, to one degree or another and some people or, or an addiction. Um, I'm definitely not on that scale at all. Like I've gone sometimes months with doing very little and it doesn't really bother me that much. I hate to say, <laughs> I mean, I feel good when I'm out exercising, definitely, but it do I don't feel terrible when I'm not. So you and I have more and more in common. I gotta <laughs> <tell you. laughs> 
Well, I think it's one of the reasons, I mean, I've been running since I was 12, you know, and I think it's one of the reasons I've lasted so long because I've had not only always taken at least one day a week of rest, but sometimes weeks or months of rest. (laughs) How do you encourage your athletes who are sort of on the more obsessive side? Like, how do you explain to them how important resting is, you know, for example, after a season taking a month off? Yeah, it's really tough because, I mean, there's some people who absolutely do not want to take any time off. Um, and in those cases, I try to get to redirect them, you know, like instead of, um, you know, doing a bunch of hardcore running, why don't you go hiking, you know, and in in here in Anchorage, you know, we're like, everybody's like 10 or 15 minutes from a trailhead. So that's an easy thing to do, you know, or try water running, or why don't you focus on some strength training during your off season? So trying to get them away from the primary sports or have them work on the, their sport that is the weakest during their off season, but also with the realization that it's okay to like, now's your time to go see some movies and, you know, go out and hang out with friends and do what? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's, that's a reaction I get, but I'll lose it all. No, that's not the way it works. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, I think it is, especially in the world of triathlon and running, there is definitely an addiction piece that I see in a lot of people. And, uh, those are people who are getting injured all the time and then running or, you know, continuing exercising through injuries. And, you know, I have, I have quite a few friends who are recovering alcoholics and obviously in prison recovering drug addicts too, that you can easily see this obsession with exercise become the new addiction. So in some ways that's okay, but on, in other ways, you still have an addiction that you need to deal with because kind of the hallmark of that addiction is that you're going to continue to do things that hurt your life, you know? So if you get injured, you're going to continue to run on that injury and make it worse and worse and worse, or you're going to forego social engagements because you got to train, you know, those are the things that drug addicts do. So it, it, it's not much different except maybe you could classify it as being a little bit healthier, but I think, I mean, I've told clients outright, I think you have an addiction and that you should probably talk to somebody about this. So, I mean, I think that's something that is kind of a little dirty secret of our sports. And this sort of gets into another topic I'd like to talk to you about is, is sort of the idea of, you know, when you get older, you have to pay attention more to those things because Mm -hmm. you're no longer young enough to just bounce back when you Mm -hmm. sort of screw up. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Um, I mean, as I, like I said, I've always been good at that because as soon as I feel any little, oh, something's wrong, I quit doing something, you know, I, I take a couple days off and I think again, that's why I've lasted so long. I mean, I've definitely noticed a difference in, um, how I respond from when I was young to, to now. And, you know, the big thing is that you're just not as fast anymore. You don't have that speed. And if you try to do that speed, you're more likely to hurt yourself. Um, so that's one of the things I always say in my groups, especially in running, like when we start to do some shorter stuff, cause I think it's important to do short, fast stuff, even as you get older, but I'm always like, now be careful your hamstrings. You know, that's the number one place where most people start to feel it. On the other hand, I feel like as an older athlete now, I'm so much tougher than I was when I was young you know, and, um, 
I, that is like a gift because I was kind of, I look back and I'm like, I, I was such a wimp sometimes, you know, I would drop out <laughs> of races and stuff like that. It's like, I don't think I'd ever do that now, you know? <laughs> so that's kind of nice. And, and just being able to go, I feel like endurance wise, I could go for days. And when I was younger, I could never do that, you know? So what do you like best about triathlon or sports or whatever, however you want to answer that? Because you joke about resting so much and not yeah. like getting out. So there must, you know, like, what is it that you like? Um, well, I think, especially as I've gotten older, the number one thing I like is getting outside, being outdoors. And I like being um, just moving outdoors um, as opposed to like when I was younger, I'd be happy like pounding out a workout on a, on a treadmill, you know, or riding the trainer. Like I haven't ridden my trainer at all this winter. I made it actually, here's a goal I made for the winter. I made a goal for this winter, not to ride my trainer at all. And I have not ridden my trainer at all. And then I made the skull, my treadmill had died. So I haven't gotten a new treadmill and I could go over to our indoor track and that's where I coach. But I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna make a goal to make every single run I do outside. And so far I've been successful this winter um, and winters, you know, we're like on the last gasp of winter. It was below zero this morning. So, um, and so I fat bike in the winter and it's just so beautiful and so different. And I just, I just, and I run out in the woods. It's just, I love being outside is the thing. I just love being outside. And I love the community of people. I love helping people get to their goals. Um, I mean, I, I really do like to do all this exercise and everything. Um, but I think resting and taking big breaks has allowed me to do it longer in my life than most people have. One thing that I often ask is about food and nutrition. So do you have any ways that you eat? Any specific rules or anything like that? Probably not since you're a hippie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'll say I've never been on a diet. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean there haven't been times where I've had to like say, okay, put down the chocolate for a little while or don't eat that ice cream, you know, because I like chocolate and I like ice cream. Those would be my two biggest things that I have to put down if, you know, because in between seasons you gain weight. And so I usually gain five to eight pounds. So when you get time to um, get into training for an event, then it's time to start thinking about, well, I need to be a little bit lighter because, I mean, that that's like almost a substitute for some training, actually, especially in running. If you can take just a few pounds off, you know, you can run faster with without putting a lot of effort into it. Well, it's been really great to talk to you. I'm so glad that we met. And I yes. look forward to following more about what you're doing. Well, thanks, Elizabeth. I'm so glad you got a hold of me. Yep, me too. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, sounds good. Thanks. A big thank you to Lisa Keller for her generous telling of sporty stories. I also thank her for being willing to test a new system for sending guests USB mics. As a guinea pig, she's had to put up with a few glitches, so I appreciate her experimental, adventurous nature. She sure sounds good, though, so I'm really glad that it worked out. Thanks to you for listening and generally supporting the show. I really appreciate your emails and your suggestions. We are focused on increasing listenership in 2019. So tell your friends about the podcast or about one interesting little tidbit you learn. 
In the show notes, there are links to remind you of those tidbits, including a video about Running Free Alaska, the prison running program where Lisa coaches. Anyway, keep listening. I'll be back in two weeks. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.